powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Shayna Francesca, a really great guest, and I was really pleased with the reception to her episode. If you have not heard our in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 179, and we have a bat-tastic episode lined up for you today. And what will go down as a milestone episode in the history of the show, we have with us in the studio today, Bert Ward, who memorably played Robin in the historic television series, Batman. Bert will talk about growing up as a chess prodigy, how he locked in the coveted role of Robin, tales from the set of Batman, his lifelong friendship with Adam West, and he talks about his incredible work in activism with Gentle Giants, a dog rescue and dog food supplier. Now, Bert has been running this rescue now for close to 29 years and has saved over, you ready for this, 16,000 dogs, and his dog food has been helping dogs live well past their expected lifespan. This is an incredible interview, folks, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. So let's get Bert out of here. Duval Nation, please join me in welcoming to the show, calling in today from his home in Gotham City, the man we know as Robin Boy Wonder of the TV show Batman, Mr. Burt Ward. <laughs> Bert, good evening. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today? It is fine, citizen. Where are you calling in from? Gotham City. Nice. <laughs> so with the pandemic coming to an end, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Well, I did a lot of navigation from the Batcave where I didn't have to worry about running into other people that might be sick. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I were very you know, concerned about that health-wise. We actually found out that there were certain uh, medications you can take to help you prevent uh, getting the COVID thing, the hydroxychloroquine. It worked actually great. We were exposed to it. I think we might have had a super mild case. I mean, I, such that I, I don't even think I knew that I had it except for possibly testing on it. And, uh, and my wife had a very minor case. So we are very fortunate to be incredibly healthy. My, my mother at 101 years old, she apparently had gotten it, didn't even know it. I mean, <laughs> she's 101. You know, they say the older you are, the more, you know, potentially dangerous it, it is. So right. knock on wood, you know, and, and both my wife and I are very health oriented. You know what I mean? We, we try to take care of ourselves and try to, you know, eat healthy and stay healthy. 
So as a result, uh, we were very fortunate, but obviously there's a lot of people that weren't so fortunate. Yeah, I understand. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born? And what was it like to grow up in post-World War II America? Yes, I was born in Los Angeles, Queen of Angels Hospital, sixth floor. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's funny. My father owned a traveling ice show, and my father also believed in an early work ethic. So at age three, I became the world's youngest professional ice skater in my father's traveling ice show called Rhapsody on Ice, which was the predecessor to ice capades, you know, the very famous ice cap. Well, before that was my father's show, Rhapsody on Ice. And it's kind of funny because I remember, you can't remember much when you're that young, but I do remember one thing that I never left my uh, my mind. And that is, I, I remember the bright lights because we were, we were playing big auditoriums and, you know, the people in the audience are in the dark and all the bright lights are shown on the, on the ice, you know, and of course ice is highly reflective. So, you know, just lots of bright lights, but when they would introduce me and out came two professional ice skaters and each one would hold one hand and they'd kind of skate me around and everybody said, well, you know, he's still able to stand up. I mean, you know, he's like three years old, so they're holding his hand and they would clap kind of nicely. And then they would let me go and I would skate around by myself. And people thought that was like, that's impossible. You, that is impossible. That defies, there's no three-year-old child that could be skating like that around the, you know, and they said, oh, it must be a midget. No, there's not a midget. It was me. But I do have my skates. And to give you an idea how small the skate is, the actual metal part was only eight inches long. And I think my shoe is about three inches long. That's how small my foot was, you know, skating on ice skates. That's amazing. Now, you were, speaking of skating, you were a very active kid. Football, track, wrestling, taekwondo. But you also itched that intellect with a fondness for chess. What inside you made you such a well-rounded student? You know, I think it was because my parents never told me I had to do something. You know, I was brought up, you know, in the 50s and 60s when, of course, that's a whole different world than today, right? But in those days, kids were kind of like, I won't say irreverent, but it was, you would never say something like, gosh, dad, you're right. (laughs) I mean, oh my God, you'd rather be strung out here (laughs) and stretched out on a stretcher than that. But, but so, um, but they always said to me, you know, if you want to make something of yourself, fine. And if you don't, that's fine too. You, you know, but you're going to be responsible for your own future. And, you know, it kind of like made me think, wow, this is all in my hands. So I like in in elementary school. You're talking. I'm talking about from first grade up. I became. I was very interested in athletics, and I was voted the best athlete of the school even when I was in the sixth grade, and it went to the eighth grade. And then in high school, uh, all kinds of every wrestling, tennis, golf, and the, but chess also intellectual things I found very interesting. And I played first board for the Beverly Hills High School, which went on to, we were either first or second in state championships. I don't remember so long back, but I do remember I loved it. And at the time, my heroes were like Bobby Fischer, you know, <laughs> I mean, one of the greatest chess players of all time and and Gary Kasparov. I mean, you know, the, one of the great Russians and I will never forget the game they played. And I was just so fascinated every single move. And I played it and retraced it and tried to figure out what their psychology was. So anyway, it, that was a fascinating thing for us. So both intellectual things and physical things were always something that I considered valuable. 
You know, it's amazing. There was a gentleman I remember when I was in the Navy, and he used to set up 10 chess boards, and he would play 10 individual games. He would just come up and down the uh, aisle right. playing right. Each, each game. It was absolutely a, a wonder to behold. It truly was. Yeah, well, you know, th- that that is actually a custom uh, customary when you get and so I remember I saw I think Bobby Fisher played 20 people at the same time. I mean, and you know, and oh geez, it, it, it was just why why is it so interesting? Because it makes you think, you know, and, and it's and it's like anything that 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 you can can use your brain to think things through. And I was always and I, I was very fond of reading too. I actually in school started speed reading, became well, I was clocked at, well, as world fastest reader, average reader reads 240 words a minute with 40% comprehension. After like three and a half years of study, I uh, reached 30,000 words a minute with 90% comprehension was the equivalent of reading the entire play of Macbeth in one minute. Wow. I remember at UCLA, where I went to the University of UCLA and, and also UCSB for one semester, but at UCLA, I read War and Peace, which was 1,442 pages in 45 minutes, and I got an A essay on the essay final. So I was very, a really, you know, hardworking student. I studied hard. I, you know, I, I like to exercise. I like to play sports. It, it was just kind of like I was just, but I was kind of a loner too at the same time. And I think maybe that's the reason that I could spend so much time studying and, and working on athletics, just I was just kind of a quiet kid, you know, as I grew up, you know, I had more opportunity to meet people and, and, you know, I've had a, a really amazing, fantastic, wonderful life. I, I just wouldn't trade it for anything. Hmm. What inspired you to give acting a go? You know, I went to Beverly Hills high school and every major celebrity, I think their kids went to that high school. So, you know, but when I was there, it was like, you know, he had Dean Martin's kids. I remember a famous director named George Seaton. He directed a movie called The Bridges of Toko Ri. I mean, they're, they're the, the most famous producers and directors and, and, and actors, you know, they went there and, and grew up, you know, going to Beverly Hills schools and or their kids did. As a result, I just found it interesting. And my first opportunity to do something was not as an actor, but to apprentice. You know, like the, the, I love the idea of learning. OK. And I had an opportunity to apprentice at a very world famous playhouse called Bucks County Playhouse uh, in New Hope, Pennsylvania. It's, it was kind of like an off Broadway place where they would take a play and they would, you know, do it in preparation to taking it on to Broadway. And I, I went there for a summer and it was the greatest thing. Every day you're building sets and painting and you're learning, you're learning about wardrobe. I mean, you are just inundated. And then every other week on a Friday, you would have to stay up all Friday night, all Saturday night, all Sunday night with all the other 19 uh, apprentices, I think there about 20 of us that would uh, put a whole set together and assemble it and have it ready to go on for Monday's show when the the next celebrity came in to star for two weeks. Yeah. It was it was fantastic. Oh, and by the way, at, I'll tell you someone else who was at that uh, at my uh, at my apprenticing, uh, Rob Reiner. Oh, <laughs> Reiner. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that name. Yeah. And he was there and because he was kind of a, a big guy. They always made him the stagehand so he could pull up that curtain, that big, heavy curtain. But I remember that. Do you remember the audition process for Batman? Absolutely. I absolutely remember very detailed my experience 
in in having an opportunity to try out for the part. My father sold his ice show and became very prominent in real estate in Beverly Hills. And he became one of the top three real estate agents. And on the weekends, I would go to the open houses and people would come in, hand them brochures and stuff. And uh, a person that came in named Saul David, who produced Von Ryan's Express and all the Our Man Flint uh, pictures, he came in and I I got to meet him and I, I asked him, I don't know how I had the nerve to do it. I said, could I do a scene for you? And he said, well, I'm here to look at houses, but I guess so. And and I did. He said, you know, you're pretty good. How about I send you to an agent? I said, oh, well, that would be fantastic. So he sent me to an agent. The agent, first thing he said to me is, I can't get work for the actors I've got. I would never take anybody new. I wouldn't consider taking you except that this producer called me and I have to do that. And he says, so don't expect to work for a year. And if you do, you might get a job with one line. Okay. Well, anyway, the first thing I got sent out for was Batman. <laughs> right? you know, now, I didn't know what I was sent out for. All I got was a phone call from a secretary in his office said, Bert. And I said, yeah. They said, well, this so-and-so from the, uh, this office, we have an appointment for you. I said, really? Yeah, you have a chance to try out for something. I said, great. What is it? Well, we don't know what it is, but they're seeing a whole ton of young guys over at 20th Century Fox. So tomorrow we have an appointment, 430. You'll be there, 10201 West Pico Boulevard. And they'll give you a drive-on pass and blah, blah, blah. And so, okay, I showed up. They uh, gave me a drive-on pass. I went uh, into a, they had bungalows there. That was their, instead of just big offices, they had these really kind of cool bungalows. And so I went in, I met a casting director. He asked me a couple of questions and then said, would you like to meet the executive producer? I said, sure. I mean, after all, doesn't everybody get to meet the executive producer? No, but I didn't know that. It was my first interview, right? I'd never been even tried out. I had been studying, though. Let me say I had been studying for three years, uh, both at UCLA and also privately with one of the top coaches in, in Hollywood, very famous coach. Anyway, so I went to meet the executive producer. And maybe because I hadn't been damaged, I hadn't been turned down, like so many actors, by the time they get a role, I mean, they've got blood in their eye. They've been rejected so many times, right? I mean, it just it is so competitive and so hard to get. And, and think of it this way. You know, if you're selling brushes or something door to door, they don't like your product. So what? But when you're the product, if somebody's, oh, you're not right or, oh, that wasn't good enough or whatever. Oh, I mean, it can really hurt. But I had never had the opportunity to try out. Lots of study, but no trying out. So when I walked in uh, I, and I, they said, oh, you can go in and meet the executive producer, Mr. Dozier. And I walked in and not having been on the interview, being a very open, friendly guy, I just walked up to him and said, hello, sir. And I shook his hand and he was so taken off guard. It's like, who the heck would do, come in and do this, right? And, and he looked at me for a minute. He says, well, I don't know. You're kind of big for the part. I said, oh, but sir, I promise you, I won't grow anymore. And he laughed. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> and, and, he, and he asked a couple of questions and he said, would you like to do a screen test? Have a screen test. I said, sure. Again, I figured, doesn't everybody get to do a screen test? No way. They only It costs so much to shoot these screen tests, but so you better be really up there in their eyes for them to go to all the trouble to get a crew of about 30 or 40 people and light it and do all that stuff. Anyway, so I went to the screen test. They wanted someone that was athletic. I had started studying karate in uh, 1960. 
1962 or 63. I was I've gotten to a brown belt. I studied with a very became the most famous USA instructor, uh, Ed Parker. And uh, and anyway, so karate had only come to the United States in 1959, just a few years earlier. So I, I came on and I did some some stuff and then I broke a board with my hand. Well, nobody had ever seen anything like that before. And so then uh, so I did, the, did the, the physical stuff and then they said, OK, well, we want you to read. Here's a here's a script, uh, a, a sheet of paper. And it was just a single sheet of paper with these paragraphs on it. Didn't say anything about the show, just said Bruce and Dick, you know, name Bruce and then a pair of text. Dick didn't say Bruce Wayne, which would have been Batman or Dick Grayson, which would have been rough. But I never even read the Batman comic book as a kid. So I didn't know. I mean, I wouldn't have known anyway. If they said Batman, but they handed me, they said, would you like to meet the actor you're going to read with? I said, sure. So they took me over and they sat me down next to Adam West, started talking to Adam West within five minutes. This man and I got along so well. We were laughing. We were laughing so much. It was disturbing them setting up the shots. I just found him to be the nicest, funniest, just a great human being. And we never stopped laughing, by the way, for all these years, always have been friends. So anyway, we did our lines together. And afterwards, they said, OK. And they said, thank you very much. I said, well, thank you very much. Great. I appreciate it. I started to leave. They said, wait, 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 wait a minute. Where are you going? Well, isn't it over? Oh, no, 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 no. No, we have one more thing for you to do, Bert. I said, oh, what's that? Well, over on the other side of the soundstage, there is a, a wardrobe trailer. And there's two wardrobe men there waiting for you to go over there. And they're going to help you get dressed. I paused for a minute. I said, well, no disrespect, but I'm perfectly capable of dressing myself. <laughs> they said, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> you just go over there. You find that trailer with the lights on, which, okay, I walked like what I thought was a quarter of a mile. I mean, these sound stages are gigantic. And I went over there, saw the light in the trailer, went in, and sure enough, there's two guys there, and they got what looks like a giant couch. It must have been 10 feet long. And all this stuff on this couch. And I said, am I going to put some of this on? And they said, no, you're going to put all of it on. I said, what? Anyway, they got me dressed. I got to tell you, the most uncomfortable costume you can imagine. Everything itched or pinched or pulled or, oh, my gosh, everything was. And and I'll never forget. It was just, and I couldn't see through the mask because only the holes you couldn't see down. And coming out of the trailers, it started to come out and nearly broke my neck because I couldn't see the step below. But I do remember turning to these two wardrobe guys and I said, well, because I was always a positive person. You know, you always want to try to think positive. I said, the good news here is that probably after another 15 or 20 minutes, I'll never have to put this costume on again. <laughs> Famous last words, right? Right. That's amazing. So when I told my listeners that you were going to be coming on the show, I asked them to submit some questions. Duval Nation did not disappoint, and I chose the most intelligent of them. I've sprinkled them out throughout the interview. The first question comes from one of my listeners in London. When you were cast in Batman, did you have any idea it would become the hit that it would be? Absolutely not. No, and in fact, it was kind of like the opposite. You know, a person thinking that you're, you know, you're doing this acting job and all how glamorous it was, but let me tell you what it was like for me in my particular case. Okay. I'm 21 years old. You know, I get up every day. I have to get up early, like, you know, and I have to be there like seven, something like that in the morning. And then you got to go into makeup and your eyes are like, 
you know, half open, holding your eyes open with toothpicks or like put your makeup on. You got to get into that horrendous costume. So by 730, you're supposed to be ready to go to work. You know what I mean? But let me tell you what the work consists of. It's a very famous phrase in show business called hurry up and wait. <laughs> so let me tell you what that consists of. It's like, oh, Bert, we got to get you to make up. Got to get you to make up. Okay, okay. Oh, we got to get you to wardrobe. All, all right, all right, all right. I'm, I'm going, I'm going. And then you sit down and you watch these guys light these sets. And it takes forever. And then the light burns out or the bulb has to be replaced or the film doesn't fit in the camera right. I mean, every conceivable thing seems to go wrong. Nevertheless, after 45 minutes of sitting, waiting, anticipating, oh, am I going to get up now? Am I going to do this now? You get up and you work for 30 seconds. 30 seconds, okay? Then you sit down for another 45 minutes. Now, just imagine doing that all day long. And here's the problem. I'm 21 years old. The closest person in age to me was Adam West, who was 37 and a half. Well, you know, I'm still a kid. I mean, really, really a kid. I was kind of like, you know, maybe sheltered or whatever, but I was not, not savvy about anything. So here I am, and I have nobody to talk to. And you, people would say, oh, Burke, just get a book. I said, yeah, let me tell you, I tried getting a book. And you start to read the first chapter and overcomes the second unit's director. Wait a minute, Bert, we got to come over here. and We got to try the light on you. Or you got to see if you fit into this. Oh, you never have peace but you also don't work for those 45 minutes and work for 30 seconds. So the answer to the question is I only saw the stuff, the course that I did. I didn't see filming with the, the villains other than when we interacted with them. So when it came for the, for opening night, which was going to be, you know, January 12th, 1966, 730 ABC network. I sat down and at the time I was in a little apartment and I turned on the TV and, there it came on. I said, oh, my gosh, this is really good. I mean, the music, you know, da -na 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 -na, the Batman theme music, the fight scenes that, you know, and I, of course, being a, a brown belt and karate, I love the fight scenes. I could have done those all day long. But the point was, is that they added these pows and zaps and graphics and the sound effects and the punches and the chairs and the tables broken, breaking over people's head. It was just amazing. And and the Batmobile and the, the 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 nuclear powers center, all of that stuff. It, I, I said, "Gee, this is really good," but I really didn't know how good or how well it was received until about three months after it aired, when I went out for my first personal appearance. Adam had gone to New York from Los Angeles. He was starring in Chase Stadium, filling Chase Stadium with with an act that he created, and I was just going out to a little. Uh, mall up in Tacoma, Washington to sign a few autographs. I get there and on, on a Friday, okay, because I got to work Saturday, Sunday. When I arrive, the people tell me that you can't get within six blocks of this mall because people were camping out in pup tents on the street and the sidewalk. There was no, you couldn't get through. We had to, you know what I mean? I had to come in by helicopter and I just, all I can tell you was I never saw so many people in my life. They told me at the end of the event that they had handed out raffle tickets amounting to 310,000 raffle tickets, 310,000. And for one appearance, you know, 
The one thing I do, I do want to say though, kind of a funny thing happened. I had to dress way away from where I was supposed to sign autographs. Okay. And, and by the way, I never got to sign any autographs. You don't understand. They had $150,000 of damage from people just crushing. No. And at that time, people hadn't figured out how to do entrances and exits. So the people in the front that, that said hello, couldn't get out because of the people pushing, you know, it, it, it was, Oh my gosh, what a mess anyway. But I had to walk to where I was signing autographs and the, the mall had hired the University of Washington football team, kind of like uh, bodyguards, the first 11 guys, offense and defense, and all these giant guys, right? And we're walking along, and I'll never forget these two elderly ladies were coming the opposite direction. Apparently, they hadn't seen Batman, okay? And they saw me in this Robin costume, and one of them looked to the other and said, huh, damn hippie. <laughs> I thought I was a hippie or something, you know, oh my gosh. But it, it was a lot of fun. And once I realized how big it was, then it was like, wow, I guess people really do like it. And I got to tell you, it became number one in the entire world. Actually, not just number one, number one and number two, because we were on twice a week primetime. That's amazing. Uh, just how dangerous was that stunt work for you on that show? Um. The first six days of filming, I went to the emergency hospital four days in a row. And I had never been to an emergency hospital. I'm not an accident-prone person. I'm a very physical person. But when you have explosions and two-by-fours and you're tied down and a two-by-four lands on your nose and breaks your nose or you get you, you get in the Batmobile and these fireworks go off and you're, they tell you you can't move because you're supposed to be knocked out. Well, fireworks that go off in the back of the Batmobile – they also come down, don't they? And they're coming down. They burn through my hair into my scalp. They burn through my my yellow cape, through the cape, through the red vest, through the green T-shirt onto my skin. Those were first-degree burns. On my arms, so where, where, where I, bare arms, I had second-degree burns. On my legs, I mean, it was incredibly – in that particular shot, they said, Bert, this is – we're shooting with 10 cameras – this is a one-time shot. This is a quarter of a million dollars for one shot. Don't you dare move, no matter what. And I didn't move, but boy, did I get burned. That's amazing. So a fan from Chicago writes in, who was your favorite Catwoman? You know, for me as a young actor, every week working with these celebrity villains, you know, it was like, I was a kid in a candy store. I mean, my gosh, here you got Vincent Price as Egghead. You've got, uh, you know, Cesar Romero as the Joker. Frank Gorshin as the Riddler. Uh, and and all of I, I, I was impressed by everyone. So even with the three cat women, I was impressed. Okay. And they were all great. And they were, I was like, I'm in awe. I mean, here I am. I, the only thing I'd ever seen these people was either on television or in a movie theater. I love to go to the movies. And so for me, I was, I, I didn't have a favorite in that sense. I would think though, most people would relate to Julie Newmar because she was the one that had by far the most, you know, screen time, you know, in the m multiple episodes that she was in a very nice lady, very funny lady, very unpredictable lady. It, both she and Adam were, were very unpredictable people. They could just say things like, oh my gosh, you <laughs> know, <laughs> and I don't know if I was just a naive kid or what, 
but for me, you know, all of this was like very new to me. I, you know, I didn't understand all of this stuff and I didn't realize you could do these things and say these things and think these things and all that kind of stuff. So do you have a favorite celebrity encounter during the famous walking up the building scenes? There were so many great stars. And the reason that occurred was because so many actors wanted and actresses wanted to be on Batman. There's not near enough parts. No way, because you got a villain, you know, and even the third year when they added two villains, that was not near enough. You're talking about hundreds. Everybody wanted Frank Sinatra wanted to be the Joker, but it had been cast as Cesar Romero. So finally, with all the pressure from and a lot of the pressure, believe it or not, came from the children of these stars because they'd say, Mommy or Daddy, can you get on Batman? Oh, that's the coolest show. Oh, my gosh. And these stars had got huge amounts of money would call up themselves, not even have their agent call and say, please, I really I got to be on the show. My child, I, I, I'll be a superhero to my child if I get on Batman. So so they created these where Adam, Batman and Robin are walking up the window, a window opens and then, you know, out come a favorite, you know, famous celebrity for a quick bit. And they were every week. Now you're adding one celebrity. So that was, a you know, an extra person. And the first week was Sammy Davis Jr. Then there was like Don Ho. Then it was Jerry Lewis. Then uh, there's so many. Colonel Clink, Lurch, uh, Betty White. I mean, Dick Clark. I mean, this just endless number of famous, well-known people that were on again. And they were thrilled. Everybody had a good time. And it's so funny. Even the crew. The crew, not just the, the actors, but the crew got into this whole Batman thing. Because I remember, I'll, I'll never forget, it was the right near the end of the show, the third year, I was talking to a cameraman. I said, you know, I've always been meaning to ask, but what's with you guys? you got a problem uh, uh, shooting the, the villain's hideout? They said, what are you talking about, Bert? So well, always, you, you know, everything else is shot straight, but I don't know who it is that's telling you to turn the camera like that. Or it's always you know, at, at an angle. I said, well, why do you do that? They said, we do it on purpose. I said, why would you do it on purpose? They said, because the villains are crooked. <laughs> so therefore they had a crooked angle on the camera. And of course you you have the villains where it says villains hide out, right? What villain would put a, the, the hideout? <laughs> and it was so funny. It, can I tell you, we had such great time and the, and the show, the hilariousness of the show I mean, I remember a time that Batman and Robin are chasing these villains on the street. I mean, we are running after these guys and they're taking off and they run across the street. And I start to run across the street and Batman says, no, Robin, we can't do that. I said, why not? We got to use the crosswalk. Oh, the crosswalk is way down there. So we got to go all the way down to use the crosswalk. You know, we got to do that. That's the law, you know, <laughs> and then chase F. It's, oh my gosh, it was so wonderful. It was People just loved it. And kids love the hero worship, you know. I mean, every kid, are you kidding? They wanted to be Batman or Robin. A lot of them wanted to be Robin. And I'll tell you why. Because they looked at themselves in the mirror. They weren't six foot four. They didn't have a driver's license, right? But Robin was smaller. And Robin didn't have that driver's license either. And Robin got to ride in the Batmobile with Batman driving and got to fight the villains and climb the wall. So a lot of kids related to Robin. And so kids love the hero worship. Adults, from what I understand, love the nostalgia of the comic book. It was a comic book that had been around since the 40s. So here, 25 years later, all of a sudden, a comic book that a lot of people enjoyed when they were growing up 
now becomes a television show. But then there was that very difficult, almost impossible audience to try to get in the 60s. And that's the high schoolers and the college kids. Because in those days, as I mentioned earlier, the kids were very irreverent. And but they because we what we did with Batman, we Adam and I created suggestive double meanings to the things we said. And these high schoolers and college kids, they picked up on that campy style and they loved it. I mean, and things that I would say where I would say, gosh, Bruce, you're right. Oh, I mean, they, they they would laugh so hard. They'd never tell their parents that their parents were right about anything, you know. And and so anyway, we had an audience that was everybody. And, and if you think about it, in those days, you know, husbands were at work. Sometimes the wife was at work. Sometimes wife home taking care of the house and the kids at school. But at the end of the day, everybody gets together back in the household. They have their dinner as a family. And then what do they do? They go in the living room and turn on the television. And there in living color is Batman. So a lot of the people that became our really big fans were people that saw us in, in, in you know, on TV as in their living room. All right. A fan from Sydney, Australia asks your favorite memory working with Burgess Meredith. Burgess Meredith. Well, what a great actor. Okay. And uh, he played the Penguin. And uh, it was funny because in his own personal life, he had stopped smoking many years before. Now they made him smoke this this very long kind of glamorous, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, cigarette holder, uh, which uh, actually made him choke. (laughs) So he, uh, he but he was really a nice man and such a professional, you know, and oh, my gosh, look at the many movies. He, of course, you know. He became equally as famous in the Rocky films, being Rocky's trainer, you know. But Burgess was a very nice man. We got along very well. He just just a fun guy, and I've met his uh, his granddaughter at some events, and uh, it just it, he was just a great guy. And and the, again, one of these people that's the consummate professional. I mean, always knew their lines, always on time, always like pure business. You know, what I mean, mm-hmm. they took they they took their craft with such pride, I mean, in their workmanship. I mean, it's it's awesome. You know, it's like the true old Hollywood that you would imagine when the when they had the really great grand stars that were bigger than life. And you know, like the Cesar Romero's very similar situation. They just had a an awesome nature. You know what I mean? You could just feel that these people were such great human beings and 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 they are so proud of their craft and they took it with such seriousness. And yet, by the way, every one of them loved Batman. They often told me this was their favorite role of everything they'd ever played in their life. And I would say, why is that? They said, because every other role has a limitation. With Batman, they could be as villainous as they wanted to be and big and broad with a gigantic hysterical laugh and all those kinds of things. A fan from Bixby, Oklahoma, asks, "Do you have a favorite holy Batman line?" Um, I did on the series. I think it was three hundred and eighty-four holies, and then when you count the Batman movie, put over four hundred. Um, I, I actually I didn't really have a favorite, but the point of it was they were always supposed to be apropos of the situation that we were in. You see, in other words, it wasn't just saying something that had no context. It had to have context. So in a spaghetti factory, I remember I had a line like, holy ravioli, Batman, you know, and stuff like that. So it was always in context. I didn't have a particular favorite, but 
my gosh, I did hundreds of them, <laughs> hundreds. And you know, it's so funny. I see people all the time saying things like, holy smokes or holy this or holy that. And it's really, you know, over all these years, it's become something that people don't even think about and will say sometimes. It's amazing. So last question about Batman and we'll move on. And that is, you know, where were you when you found out they were no longer going to be making the series? Well, I was at at the studio at the time. They said, you see, what happened was this. Remember, it's called show business. Okay. You know, yes, you have a show, but it's also a business. And Batman was a very expensive show to make. I mean, from what I was told, the studio was losing back in those days in the 60s, two and three hundred thousand dollars a week. It's like losing like five or six million dollars a week. And after 120 episodes, they figured they had enough that they could sell Batman into reruns forever. Now, they don't get as much money when they sell it into reruns, but you have no cost because they've already made the show. So it became a business decision. And it was interesting because NBC wanted to pick it up. But when they found out that the Batcave, which was in 1965, they spent $800,000 to build the Batcave. That's like spending $10 million to build it. But when it was destroyed and then NBC said, well, we're not going to go risk you know, an enormous amount of money to build it. We would have gone on with it if if it hadn't been. And it's unfortunate because I think Adam and I would have loved to continue. Holy interview, Duvall Nation. We're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Burt Ward. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right. Cluzo style. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back. Are you craving a cinematic thrill? Join Too Many Captains, four friends who choose a new release in theaters and look back at an important film that influenced it. Tune in weekly for your ultimate movie fix. We break down everything from the story structure to the budget versus box office and the masterminds behind cinema classics. Think Damien Chazelle, Catherine Bigelow, Alejandro Gonzalez, and Rick Two. Close enough. We dish hot takes on A-list stars we all know or mispronounce. Like Ralph Finesse, Seorsi Ronan, and Shewelta Ijefor. You get the gist. Find us at moviepodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Join the fun as three fanboys and an ADHD buddy dive into film history. Too Many Captains, your film podcast fix. Hello, Duvall Nation. Derek Duvall here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeBall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. 
Then you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And together we are the Spy Hearts Podcast. Every Tuesday, we decode the best and the worst of spy cinema to decipher if they make the knock list. That's right. The knock list is the need-to-see official classics of the spy genre. The best of the best, so to speak. Nobody does it better. From Bourne to Bond and Powers to Palmer, you can bet we will cover it. So subscribe now and revel in the audio equivalent of a smooth martini. Just search for SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on all major podcast apps. And let's just hope you find us before we find you. Janae Sergio, 
thriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 179 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with the legend we know as Robin Boy Wonder from the hit television show Batman, Mr. Burt Ward. I want to move on to Gentle Giants. Can you tell us the story of how rescuing one Great Dane led to the creation of this extraordinary operation? Yeah, well, here's what happened. In 1994, my wife and I moved from where we were living near the beach, which is, of course, beautiful. We had a uh, our daughter was like three years old, and because at the beach here in Southern California, the property is so incredibly valuable that you get usually very small lot, and then you have these houses that go way up. I think we had a 4,000-square-foot house on a 2,000-square-foot lot. I mean, it was just, you know, because the property is so valuable, but we had all these balconies, and we said, you know, that's, well, these balconies way up in the air, and here you got a little kid, right? Now, I think we need to move inland. Let's get onto a single floor where it's safer to bring up a child. Plus, you know, uh, you, you just have so little property. I think we had five feet around three sides of our house and 15 feet in the front. So we said, let's go see if we can get some property and bring up our child where, you know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, where they can grow up with some animals and go outside and play and feel that they're in a fairly safe environment, right? So we found this city, which is, it's called Norco, N-O-R-C-O, means North Corona. It's the last Western town in America where horses have the right of way over cars. When you drive down the street, instead of seeing dotted uh, uh, white lines, you see dotted red, white, and blue lines. I mean, you talk about all Americana, every commercial building has to have a Western theme, I mean, the building has to be structured like something out of the Old West. Every every commercial building has to have a horse tie up in front. And people have every animal you can conceive of here. I mean, where do you go when you see camels going down the street and and 800 pound pigs, you know, that they can walk or or, uh, you know, emus and oh, just all these ostriches all these exotic animals, you know, not wild animals, but, but, you know, more, certainly more than your typical domestic pet. Right. So we came here and we thought it'd be great for our daughter to grow up with a dog. And I had always wanted a great Dane and my wife had grown up with Irish wolfhounds. So we just set out to find one of the other and we, they were actually very scarce. And in the case of great Danes, um, we quickly found out, that the reason they were so scarce is that the person who had rescued them, because uh, all these res- every rescue has a what they call a breed-specific rescue. So there's a Chihuahua rescue, there's a Great Dane rescue, there's a German Shepherd rescue, probably a dozen German Shepherd rescues because they're such a popular breed, but they all have a rescue. Well, whoever was rescuing Great Danes in Southern California herself had died. And now every Great Dane that had to be given up would go to a shelter and in, in animal shelters, the dogs are barking because they're frightened behind cages. 
And who's going to take a big giant dog out of a cage and they're barking, right? People too afraid. So they all got put down. Mm. And I remember saying to my wife, this is the first week in August of 1994. I said, Tracy, we can't let these dogs die. These big, gentle babies are so sweet and gentle. How about just for a couple of weeks till we find somebody else to take this over? How about we just, you know, rescue them in a couple of weeks? We'll find somebody to do this. But look what we will have done. We will save these lives. Well, we didn't exactly find anybody to take it over. So by the end of August, now this is less than 30 days, in our house, we had 102 full-size Great Danes. 102, Derek. That's and on top of that, we had 62 puppies under seven weeks of age. We didn't breed. We never bred a dog. We only rescue. But the shelters would call us if they rescued a litter because in animal shelters, there's sometimes rampant disease and the puppies are so susceptible and they can't even give them shots at that age, you know? So long story short, my wife was sleeping on our kitchen floor for three to four months because she, you have a mother in there that's nursing the puppies. And with a great Dane, they're so big. If they stand up to, like they want to go out to go to the bathroom, if they step on a puppy, they'll kill them accidentally. Right. So, you know, she's like trying to keep the puppies connected when they're nursing. And then when they're disconnected for not stepped on, she puts the mother out. She then incubates the puppies and in comes the next letter. And she does all of that connecting them. And this one didn't connect. And that one let go. And bye, bye, bye. And by the time she got finished with the seventh litter, it was time to start the first letter over again. And she never got to hardly other than use a restroom. She slept on our kitchen floor for four months with pillow and a blanket, you know, taking care. And finally, they grew up enough that, you know, they didn't have to be with their mother. And they all, you know, we saved every life. And, uh, and, and all and that became the beginning. And, you know, all these years, it's been 30 years, 30 years. And nobody has ever come to rescue us. <laughs> and and because these giants traditionally have the shortest lifespan, if we didn't adopt one quick enough and one died, oh, my gosh, it tore us apart. We literally cried and sobbed. Oh, and we would do anything. We would spend whatever amount of money to try to save a life. It was, it was, tr and we vowed to each other. If there was a way, we would try to find a way to help these beautiful, gentle giants live longer. And we first, because, I mean, just imagine if you had all those dogs in your house, Derek, you're talking about 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? I mean, this is not like in another building or outside. This is in your house, your living room, your bathroom, your kitchen, you know, everywhere. So we learned quickly and we developed a special way of feeding and care for dogs that at the time added about three years to their life, which was pretty amazing. You go from nine years to average lifespan to 12. That's big, big improvement. Then we decided what else could we do? And then we created this very special food that is unlike any other dog food in the world. It's very special. And with that food, we now have dogs living up to 27 and a half years. And we thought that was spectacular until four months ago. We got a call from a man in Phoenix, Arizona. He said, you know, I've been feeding my dog your food for 15 years. And I because, you know, it came out many years ago. And I said, well, that's says, yeah, I got my dog when uh, he was six weeks old. I got him from the pound and he's 29 and a half years old right now on January 3rd of of 2024, he will be 30 years old. 
I said, oh, my gosh. Now, here's somebody that really knows how old is he got it at six weeks from an animal shelter. That's, you know, they don't let him go before six weeks and, and has had the same dog for all these years. That's incredible. Anyway. So we're, we're, we're doing a TV spot with them. And that when that comes out, people are going to be blown away to see a dog that is right at 30 years of age. So the long and short of it, we created a special food. It really works. It's different from every other dog food. It's available all over the United States and throughout Canada. In Canada, we're in Walmart. In the U.S., we're in Target. In, in Texas, H-E-B, Southern California, Stater Brothers, Food City uh, in the southern states. And, and starting August 1st, uh, only about a month away, we're going to be in 920 Petco stores. So everyone in the U.S. doesn't have to get it by mail order. They can actually go to a local Petco and pick up Gentle Giant. So we're, and, and again, because this is our charity, we take no salary from this. People are stunned. They say, oh, well, maybe you don't take any money, but you donate your profits to your charity. I said, no, no, you don't understand. We sell this at just a little bit above what it costs us. So we have enough to cover, you know, damaged things or right. trucks that don't show up or have accidents. I said, you know, this is not this is not for us to make money. This is our life's work. And people love that in today's world. Look at our economy, Derek. Look at the mess where people can barely afford to feed themselves. Everything is so expensive. And here we can put out what we believe. And by the fact that we're the only ones in the world, to my knowledge, that have dogs living that long, the finest food in the world, and people can get it at an incredibly reasonable price because we're not taking anything from it. Right. You know, it's funny. You've been running this rescue for, I believe, what, close to 29 years, you said, right? Yeah, August of 1994. You so uh, we're going to be about a year away. You're right, 29 years. And you saved over 16,000 dogs. 15,500 as of about six years ago. We finally stopped counting. Well, that makes you a hero in my eyes and every dog lover's eyes in pretty much in the world. I'm not going to lie to you. So yeah, well, let me tell you, you know how much food we feed every day? 600 pounds a day. How many so dogs we do you have, currently have? We have 50. 50. But these are giants. Right. These, if you go to our website, GentleGiantsDogFood.com, the first thing people see is a full screen, 11 minute video of my wife, Tracy, and I in bed with 50 of them. And we're talking about really big dogs. People say, oh, well, how big a dog do you have? Well, I'll tell you something, Derek. Most people have never seen a 200 pound dog. We have dogs up to 300 pounds. They're not fat. They're gigantic. I had, I had two dogs that stood on their hind legs seven feet five and a half inches tall, four inches taller than Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball player. Okay. And these, these are giant dogs. W one of our dogs, he comes over to the kitchen sink, you know, the, 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 the and, and kitchen counters, actually they're 40 inches. He has he, his lowest part of his back is 45 and a half inches. His back is higher back, not his head. His back is higher than the kitchen counter. And he leans way down to drink from the kitchen faucet. We've got to lean way down to drink from that. That'll give you, he's like, a, these are like small ponies and these mastiffs. Now they're not tall, but they're heavy. In our video, one of our that one of my mastiffs, he's 295 pounds. And, and right on the video, he turns around and sits down on my leg on, and I'm in the bed. He sits on my leg, nearly broke my leg. And you watch my wife, Tracy, she's laughing. She thought that was the funniest thing she ever saw. <laughs> but but it is quite something to, to I mean, and a lot of people said, oh, you probably photoshopped 
that photo. And I said, no, no, it's not a photo. Hit that play button and you're going to see all those dogs. are. And they go, oh, my gosh, it's real. How could that be? How could you have so many? So 600 pounds is 20 30-pound bags. Just imagine, what does it take to lift, carry, and pour 20 30-pound bags every single day? No days off, Derek, on Saturdays or Sundays. Uh-uh. No holidays. This is seven days a week for 30, almost 30 years. Well, you're in good shape, I can tell. Uh, I, don't know. <laughs> I keep saying, I need somebody to come rescue me. That's amazing. So I do want to ask you, what would, do you remember from the day you got your star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? That was a terrific time. You know, I had always hoped that I might have a chance to get that. You know, I finally got it. It only took a little over 50 years. And Derek, let me tell you, I like to think of myself as a patient person. But 50 years, don't you think that is a little bit of a long time? But I was very honored. And the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce were fantastic. What a great honor. I, I can't tell you how much in the people that make up the Hollywood Chamber. They're very dedicated. And not every actor gets to be. This is not just about being a celebrity. This is you have to be a celebrity that does charity work. And, you know, everybody knows us for rescuing dogs and cats, by the way. I told you 15,500 dogs as of about seven or eight years ago. But we've rescued 350 or 400 cats. And, and also we've rescued horses at some point, we rescued pigs. We not not great quantities, but we rescued a sheep. We rescued goat. I mean, you know, if you save lives, then you save lives, right? And and so we we think life is the most precious commodity in the world. And so we we've loved doing this. So that that's been something that we do and will continue. And I'll tell you what I look forward to doing is that we've been very fortunate, and very successful in our other businesses, and. Uh, now we're going to start making our own television series and our own films. And on our property, we have a beautiful five-acre estate. We have 20,000 square feet under roof. And we have a beautiful, beautiful animation and recording studio with all 3D animation, the best equipment. And now we have our own sound stage, and we're starting to equip our sounds. We can make our own programming. And everything we're going to do is going to be uplifting and positive. And, and I like to say that my wife and I, we want to leave this planet better off than we found it, Derek. That's, That's really what our, our goal is. Very noble. Very noble. What was it like to reprise the role of Robin for the animated film Batman Return of the Cape Crusaders? Well, we did two features. There were two animated features for Warner Brothers. Adam and I did the voices. Very good animation. You know, Adam and I love to work together. You know, it's, it's funny. After the series... Okay, and the series is three years, 120 episodes. That's no small thing. Six days to make each one, 120 of them, by the way. But for all these years after, we made appearances a lot of times together, you know, where you go out and have these events. And I mean, we actually hold arena records at some of the biggest arenas in the United States, which you think would, oh, that has to be a rock group that would hold that record. But like in um, McCormick Place, Chicago, I think it was 188,000 paid attendance pay over a weekend, 188,000 people. And then uh, Cobo Hall in Detroit, 170 some odd thousand people. So uh, we, it, 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 we, we worked together a lot. We, we enjoyed each other's company, even on, even when we were doing Batman on some weekends when we weren't too exhausted, we'd go out and play tennis together, you know, and, and sometimes we'd go on a public court 
And I'll never forget a couple of times these people would come out and they'd look at us, you know, and they're here. We're just playing tennis, right? We're not in wearing our costumes, obviously, but we're playing tennis and they look close. They look at me and they look at it and they go, oh, my gosh, that's Batman and Robin playing tennis. Oh, and then we couldn't continue to play. Oh, hey, can we get your autograph? Can we? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. We, we, we don't we got to can't do this much longer. We got to finish our game, you know, but we, we always had a great time. Uh, and it's been an amazing, wonderful memory, Garrett, that I will treasure. And I've done a lot of other features. And some people say, well, you know, but how about the fact that, you know, Batman was so big for you and, you know, and you've done other features, but they're not near as, as the famous. I said, look at it this way. The way I think of life is this. It's like a glass that's full. It can be full with a whole bunch of different projects that you've done, or it can be full based on one gigantic project with some smaller ones. It's still full, right? <laughs> and that's the way I look at it. I, I feel very fortunate that I've had an amazing, wonderful, knock on wood, healthy, happy life. And and my wife is, we think alike, we've been together 34 years. We just have the best time together, you know? A fan out of Tulsa, Oklahoma writes in, what do you think of these modern takes on the Batman and Robin characters? Well, that's a good question. You know, remember we were a television series. We were on in the 60s, more conservative than today. We were a family show. So our programming was designed and suitable for all ages, from the youngest kids to the oldest seniors. However, after Batman, then the studio decided they were going to go for a theater audience. And that's different than a television audience. Theater audience likes things that are a little edgier, things that uh, are more adult, you know, mainly the people that go to the theaters are your young adults, teenagers, college kids, and, and you know, adults. Those are the main ones. Kids go occasionally when they have a kid's movie, you know, and yes, there can be wonderful, popular kids movies, but they decided to take a different turn with Batman. They didn't want the comedy or the campy style. They wanted this dark side, you know, the, the black knight, or the Dark Knight, excuse me, that was called The Dark Knight. It was a a, a, a novel that was written um, about Batman. And, and they it, they took a whole different turn. And the, there's still wonderful programming. Warner Brothers has done an amazing job. Their films are fantastic. Um, they get to some of the talented, greatest actors and actresses. And, the, you know, I mean, everything is first class. So so it's just different, you know. And, and when you understand that, you know, different things for a different marketplace, then you'll understand how they, they go about their designing the shows. Hmm. How important was it for you to write Boy Wonder, My Life in Tights? Well, I'm not sure the word important was the right word. Let me just say this. I had so many experiences and I would tell these stories, you know, just to my friends and people and I run into and everybody's pounding. Oh, Burke, you got to write a book. Yeah, I got to write. I said, oh, I'm not good at writing a book. Oh, no, 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 no. You just tell the story. All you have to do, you have so many things that have happened to you, good, bad, and indifferent. It would be just fantastic. You got to write this. Well, finally, my friends convinced me to do it. And I, I actually had a good time doing it. And there certainly are. There's a million stories of every crazy thing that happened on Batman. And yes, um, you know, being a person that does things 100 percent, you know, what I mean? there are people that say, oh, I'm going to write this book and it's going to have a racy part to it. I didn't attempt to write a racy book. I just told the truth. And my wife likes to describe 
my book is kind of like a, a coming of age book, a, a risky business, a kind of a, you know, here you are with somebody grown up in the shadows of Hollywood that as naive as there could be coming onto the set and the number one show in the entire world, actually number one and number two. And with my dear friend, Adam, who was wild and crazy guy, constantly talking to me and, Oh, you got to do this. You got to go do that. You know, let's go have this fun and let's do that. And I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, <laughs> and then, you know, and all of these things happen and it is, uh, it was totally wild and crazy. But the, I guess the thing about me is that if I do something, I don't do it halfway. I just, I either tell it exactly like it is, or, you know, I don't tell it. I don't, I don't try to embellish it because, all these crazy things can happen to you. You don't have to embellish anything, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that's what sort of what happened with, and the, and the book, of, you know, it came within 20,000 of being a bestseller and it was not distributed by any major. It was distributed by a, a little independent book retailer, uh, wholesaler, I should say. And uh, it would, uh, you know, and now, I mean, it's astronomical. If you can find a copy, what the value is, I mean, just it's ridiculous, you know, even without my signature on it. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, and, and I'm, I'm tempted to uh, write an update to it or whatever, but it really covers basically everything from being the young kid to, you know, what I call holy maturity, <laughs> meeting my wife and kind of growing up and, and all of a sudden, you know, doing the kinds of things that adults do and people that really are into charity do. And that's, you know, we, we've had I, I've had a wonderful life. I I can't say I've changed anything different, although it wasn't perfect. I must tell you, you know, I was doing Batman. I'll tell you one quick story. When I was doing Batman, the first season, a young Hollywood producer named Larry Terman came up to me when I was on the set. He said, Bert, I've got a very small film here at 20th Century Fox. It's not another studio. So the studio would probably let you do it, you know. And I'd love for you to star in this movie with me for me. And I said, oh, great, Larry. And I was all excited to do it. And then the studio said, yeah, Bert, you can do it. This is going to be your hiatus. You can go film that, you know, and it's here at the same studio. We have no complaint about it. So I'm all set to do this. And the network, ABC, finds out about me doing this. And they didn't want me to do it. And here's the reason why. ABC, before of Batman and before Bewitched, was a, um, a, a uh, what do they call it? Uh, it was it was not a it was not a broad it was not a broadcast network. It was a syndicated network. So it wasn't the stature of an AB of a CBS or an NBC that were national broadcast network. Batman and Bewitched were so enormously successful it made ABC the third broadcast network, and they knew how powerful. Our shows were and the tremendous draw they were. And they didn't want any dilution of the Robin character. They didn't want me playing anything. So the, the studio and the, and the, and the, you know, um, and the production company out of respect for the network. I mean, the networks are the one putting you on, right? They said, Bert, uh, you, you know, sorry, you just can't do it. It's a little film anyway, you know, don't worry about it. Well, that film turned out to be one you might've heard of called the graduate and when they couldn't get me, they got a guy named Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman. Yeah. yeah. And that was, uh, but so you see, you win some, you lose some, but you know, and it's so funny for all these years afterwards, I, it was like every three or four years, I would run into the same producer might be at a restaurant in LA or something like that. 
And he'd say, Bert, I always wanted you for that part. I said, oh, please, Larry, don't tell me anymore. <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, I, I would have loved to have done it. You know, I couldn't do it. Anyway, so you win some and you lose some. But overall, it's been fantastic, you know, I, and I'm very happy. And I, I want to do great things. I think there's a lot more for me to do while I'm here. Adam West passed away in 2017. What do you take away from your time knowing him? And what do you think his legacy in the realm of the Batman universe is? Well, Adam was one of my dearest friends. I mean, we were friends for over 50 years. I mean, that's a long time, Derek. And we had some of the best times together. And we would, you know, that we'd go out on these on these weekends, even with the autograph parties, and we'd have our agents with us and stuff. But we'd have dinners and we'd sit around and talk about things. And we just had the best. It was it was a wonderful from the day I met that man in 1965. He and I, within 10 or 15 minutes, were laughing and we never stopped laughing. We just enjoyed each other's company. Just a great, funny, truly a funny person. Not one of these comics and get ups and has to use a lot of swear words to, you know, to tr try to make people laugh. Adam was naturally a very funny human being. So I take away from it a, a fantastic memory. And I people say to me, well, who do you think was the greatest Batman? I said, here's what I say. Every actor that played Batman in the movies has done a wonderful job. I mean, they're great actors, but there's really, in my mind, only one real Batman, and that was Adam West. Everyone else, great actor, portraying a role, but that's all. Batman is the only one is Adam West, and I mean that. And as a result, uh, the legacy in is that people and kids will forever, while that show is aired, um, huh, they're going to they're gonna get, get something from it. And I must tell you, I do these events. I did one gigantic event. I don't know if you know this, but if there's ever a public event that has expected to have 100,000 people or more, the Homeland Security gets involved, which means the FBI is there and stuff like that as part of security. And there was a big event, uh, Huntington Beach. Uh, there's an annual parade, and I was the uh, you know person leading the parade, Grand Marshal. It was funny because they had told me that uh, there's going to be all these FBI agents there and everything to make sure that it was safe. And one of them came up to me and introduced himself. He said, you know, I grew up and I could have been on the wrong side of the law, but I watched Batman and I saw how valuable it was. And here it is. I turned my life around and that became in law enforcement. I've been in the in the FBI for like 12 years. I mean, the nicest man in the world. And look what positive thing had come out for his life of growing up watching our show. So I think we did a lot of good. That's amazing. Pierre de Coubertin said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger self. What do you say to him? <laughs> well, I don't necessarily say that. Struggles can be <laughs> painful. You know what I mean? But I do tell people this, and it's a very positive thing. Just remember, the first hundred years are the hardest. After that, it's pretty smooth sailing, right? And don't take life seriously. You don't get out of a life anyhow. And the best things in life are free, so here I am good for nothing. Yeah. And your nearest helping hand is at the end of your arm. And speak when you're angry and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. So those are the words of wisdom that I've lived by for these years. What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Believe it or not, Right now, because of our dedication and the growth of this business that even though we don't take any salary from it, it still takes up all of our time. 
is believe it or not to go to our website, um, which is gentlegiantsdogfood.com. Eventually, there's been such a demand for us to open up where I can have autographed photos available. I don't have that available right now. I've just been working so hard, but there are people that want to send me their lunch boxes from 50 years ago. That <laughs> I mean, I've seen some of these fans that they bring this to an event. And it looks like a like a, a tractor trailer ran over that lunchbox, and and that is their treasured lunchbox that they want to see, or or a, or a, a card uh, like a baseball card, or you know, any, the, oh, there's so many people that have things that memorabilia that means so much to them, and you know, also a lot of people want autographed photos and stuff, and eventually. We're going to do this. I, I told you about we have our new production company to make films and movies. It's called Superheroes to the Rescue, Inc. So we may put uh, our autograph and memorabilia things through that. And uh, my wife keeps telling me, Bert, you don't realize I know 10,000 people the first six months are going to want an autograph. Oh, nobody's going to want my autograph. Are you kidding? You you know, and it, and it's, it, it is funny because I do get you know, contacts all the time and say, well, yeah, I'm thinking about it, but I've just, just been so busy doing other things, but uh, I'm going to get around to it because I do want to have, you know, there some people really, it, it really means a lot to them to have their autograph or signed or their photo signed or we offer something. So I'm going to get into that probably sometime later this year. I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? I would say make every day count. We're only on this planet a very short time. And we're here, I believe, for a purpose. And to me, the greatest thing that you can do is save a life. Whatever it is, an animal, a human, whatever it is, life is the most precious commodity in the world. Beautiful. Bert, you have left your mark on Hollywood history. And to be honest with you, it's a true honor to have such a legend grace the studio with me today. Thank you uh, for coming on the show. This has been uh, truly fantastic. Well, thank you, Derek. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, I, and it's great to be able to reach out to people because, you know, when you're busy, you know, and, and someone like you that has got a wonderful uh, opportunity to reach so many people in so many different avenues and people that are that, that, you know, are looking to, to, to find something special in life and now they can be entertained and educated at the same time. So I think you provide a, a very special service and I commend you on that. Well, thank you very much. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 179. After the interview was stopped, Bert spent about 45 minutes explaining the importance and science behind his dog food, and we are making the switch over to it so our dogs can live fuller lives. Give it a go, Duval Nation. You'll be happier than you did. Bert, sir, thanks for talking to me. My life is better for speaking with you, and you are welcome back on this show anytime. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for the episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode, especially this one? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. 
We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner of the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, citizens... Just listen to this, smile, and think of a happier time in our lives. Star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.